Everything here at Keyboard Kimura is presented by OneBone, the first size-inclusive, big and tall brand. If you've been rocking with me for a while, you know I've been rocking with OneBone for a little bit now, and there are a bunch of reasons why. In addition to the fact that I straight up love their gear, from the different styles of pants and shorts, to the shirt varieties, hoodies, zips, the hot sauce, the whole collection, I'm in. But it's also because they understand that size doesn't matter, fit does. I'm a bigger guy and I carry it all in my belly, which meant for me, finding shirts that were long enough to not be revealing when I raised my arms or that kept me covered if I had to crouch down to pick something up was a challenge, but One Bone solved that. All the tops have added length to cover the gap between your shirt and your pants and everything is made from premium fabrics with tops ranging in size from medium to 8XL and bottoms going from a waist size of 30 to 65 inches. There is a sizing guide on the website that makes it easy to find the absolute right fit. And from flyweight to heavyweight and beyond, One Bone has got you covered. They offer free exchanges and returns to guarantee your perfect fit. And you can even buy now and pay later with four interest-free payments. On top of that, they're Canadian. And for me, that's important. As a One Bone ambassador, I've got you covered with a one-time promo code for 15% off your entire order. All you have to do is visit the link in the show notes, onebonebrand.com forward slash Spencer Kite, and enter the promo code Spencer Kite. That's my name, Spencer Kite, all caps, all one word, at checkout, and you get 15% off your entire order. It is, as I said, a one-time use code. But I'm confident that once you cop some One Bone gear and become part of the One Bone family yourself, you'll understand why my entire wardrobe consists of One Bone apparel. Go check out Drop 17, which hit the site a couple of days ago, featuring four new colors in the scoop and the V-neck t-shirts, plus the new Outwork pants in military green and black. I've got an order going in this week. You should too. One Bone, for big and all. Greetings and salutations. Welcome everybody to episode 41 of the Next Day Takeaways here on Keyboard Kimura, presented to you by One Bone. I am your host, E. Spencer Kite, coming to you on Sunday afternoon, August 27th, here to recap and look at UFC Singapore, which took place bright and early yesterday morning at Singapore Indoor Stadium. We will start as we always do, just by going through the results, going through the fight card, top to bottom. Then we will get into the takeaways. We'll close things out with the matchmaking segment where we try to figure out what may come next for the victors from Saturday morning. I was going to say evening, evening in Singapore. But first and foremost, let's go through the results. In the main event, Max Holloway stops Chan Sung Jung, the Korean zombie, at 23 seconds of the third round. A terrific performance for Max. Second consecutive victory. Chan Sung Jung then announces his retirement from the sport. A beautiful tribute to him playing his signature walkout zombie by the Cranberries. And then a nice video tribute as well from the people at the UFC. Uh, co-main event, Anthony Smith defeats Ryan Spann by split decision. 29-28 across the board, 2-1 to for Lionheart, who rallies to get back into the win column and pick up a second victory over Ryan Spann. 
Featherweight division again, Giga Chikadze defeats Alex Caceres by unanimous decision in his first appearance in well over a year. 30-27s across the board, a good win for Giga in his return. Bantamweight prospect Rinya Nakamura defeats Fernie Garcia by similar 30-27 scores across the board. Excuse me, 30-26 from one judge, 30-27 from the other two. 2-0 now officially in the UFC for Nakamura. 8-0 overall. Definitely somebody we will talk about as we get into the takeaways themselves. Flyweight fight Aaron Blanchfield defeats Tyler Santos. 29-28 across the board for Cold-Blooded. In the main card opener, Junior Taffa defeats Parker Porter. KO, 1 minute 24 seconds into the opening stanza. First UFC victory for Junior Taffa. On to the prelims. Waldo Cortez Acosta defeats Lucas Dreschke by KO. 3 minutes and a penny into the opening stanza. Bantamweight Garrett Armfield gets a first round stoppage win over Toshiomi Kazama. Four minutes and 16 seconds into the opening frame. Middleweight Mihao Olishechuk defeats Chidi and Jokuwani by first round stoppage. Four minutes and 16 seconds into the opening stanza. Back-to-back fights. That wasn't a misread. Back-to-back fights ending at four minutes, 16 seconds of the opening round. I can't think of another time that has ever happened in UFC history. I'm sure one of the even bigger stat nerds than me will have let us know about that at some point along the way. Welterweight division, Song Kinan defeats Rolando Badoya by unanimous decision, 29-28 across the board for the Chinese veteran. Staying in the welterweight division, Billy Goff defeats Yusaku Kinoshita by TKO in the first round, 3 minutes 49 seconds into the opening frame to win the battle of Dana White Contender Series graduates. JJ Aldrich defeats Liang Na by TKO in the second round, 4 minutes 49 seconds in. Good win for the veteran flyweight Aldrich. And then in the opener, Sung Woo Choi defeats Yarno Ahrens by unanimous decision. 30-27, 29-28 twice for Sting, who gets back into the win column, snapping a three-fight losing streak. So those are the results. Now let's talk about what I looked at, what, what came to me from this event and my takeaways from this event. I want to start with Chan Sung Jung. I'm happy to see him retire. And I don't say that in a, you know, morbid way. I don't say that in a don't like him way. But he is a fighter that is always talked about. If I cannot compete at the highest level, I don't want to continue competing. That's what he said again in his post-fight interview in the cage when he announced his retirement. Was that if I could, if I can't beat Max then I'm not going to be able to get to the title. And if I'm not going to be able to get to the title, then I'm going to walk away. He has secondary things in place. He has the next career, the next job title, I guess, for lack of a better way of putting it in place with his team, Korean Zombie MMA. We will see him coaching. He will be a fixture in mixed martial arts. I think this is what I want to see from more athletes. Now, ideally... The coolest way to do it, the idealized version of doing this is going out on a victory, right? Competing, in his case, this was somewhere close to home in Singapore. You go out, you get a victory. You say, that's it. I'm going out on a high. Away I go, right off into the sunset. That's the idealized version. But going out like this and understanding that I just don't have it at this level anymore, 
is really admirable to me. And you could see the emotion both in him, in his coaches. He had a wonderful embrace with Eddie Cha in the cage. You saw it with his wife, whom he walked back to the back with as they shared some tears. This is this is what I, I've talked a bunch in recent episodes of this show about needing to find better exit strategies for athletes and needing, wanting, I should say, to see veteran competitors exit at the right time, exit in the right ways. And for me, this is part of it. Zombie understood going into that fight and and probably beforehand, like, I just, I don't have what it takes. I don't have that same drive, passion, energy to be at the absolute apex of this. And if I'm not going to be there, I'm not going to put myself, my family, my body through the rigors of competing just to keep competing. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with making that choice. You've heard me on here many times over talk about the Jim Millers and Andre Arlovskis that want to continue competing, recognize that, but also understood it's time to take a step back in terms of the level of competition. If Zombie wanted to continue doing that, more power to him. I think there also, though, becomes a point in the Donald Cerrone vein, in the Frankie Edgar vein, probably in the Tony Ferguson vein, where you have to go, even with these steps back, it's not working. So if you wanted to do one more, and if the UFC knew they were going to go to South Korea next year, for instance, they were supposed to go earlier this year, that didn't happen. So maybe that happens later, early next year, let's say. Then I would have understood him saying, I'll be back for one more and trying to go out on a high in at home in South Korea. But as it stands, as much as this is a sad moment from a fan perspective of losing somebody from the octagon that has given us countless entertaining fights, just a career literally full of entertaining performances. If you look at his UFC career, it's shorter than you remember, or it's shorter than you think. There's not an unentertaining fight amongst the bunch. Debuts in Seattle. I was fortunate enough to be there with the twister over Leonard Garcia. Follows that up with a seven-second knockout win over Mark Hominick at UFC 140. Then chokes out Dustin Poirier in his first UFC main event. Fights for the featherweight title against Jose Aldo. Comes back several years later after his mandatory military service. Walks back into the octagon and knocks out Dennis Bermudez the night before the Super Bowl in Houston in February 2017. Loses to Yair Rodriguez with the ridiculous up elbow at the very last second of the anniversary show in Denver, Colorado. Knocks out Hanato Moicano, stops Frankie Edgar, loses to Brian Ortega, beats Danny Gay, fights for the title again against Alexander Volkanovsky, and wraps things up in Singapore last night against Max Holloway. It was a phenomenal career. That's just the UFC as well. The two fights in the WEC are both absolute bangers as well. KO's George Roop with a head kick opens his career in the WEC with an absolute brawl against Leonard Garcia. Fantastic career. Should be a Hall of Famer at some point because it is the UFC Hall of Fame. And a guy like that that is just, this is another one of those cases. And Daniel Cormier can get mad at me or anybody that suggests it. I heard a really great argument today from J.E. Skeets of, I believe they're called, they used to be the basketball Jones. They're the dunker pod now or something like that. 
he was talking today and I saw it on my Twitter feed or my X feed. He was talking about Vince Carter's case for the hall of fame. And he said, it's the hall of fame, not the hall of championships, not the hall of rings, but the hall of fame. And for Vince Carter's career, there weren't many basketball players that were more famous than Vince Carter. And he had moments in his career that just elevated him above and beyond anything that some of these champions did. And as somebody that has historically sort of pushed at the like, no, but you have to meet a certain threshold in terms of achievement and accomplishment to get into one of these halls of fame, one of these exclusive groups or should be exclusive groups. I sat there and said, you know what? Skeets is right. And so to me, a guy like Chan Sung Jung, who didn't win the title, but was consistently entertaining, was a perpetual top five, top 10 fighter, went away for several years, dealt with myriad injuries, came back after his mandatory military service and those injuries and was right back into the mix. That's a guy to me that belongs in the Hall of Fame in the next couple of years. I hope he gets there. I think he will get there. I'm glad to see him walk away. I wish him all the best going forward. I know we will continue to see him. He has already inspired a generation or two of athletes in his native South Korea. He is coaching some of them. Some of them are already in the UFC. So he will be around. But I'm glad he's going to be on the outside of the octagon and not inside of it going forward. In his victorious performance, Max Holloway didn't really teach me anything or show me anything that I didn't already know about him. It's just that he is unquestionably the silver medalist in this division right now until proven otherwise. I'm willing to con continue considering evidence, but so far, thus far, there's no way to argue against it. The only person he has lost to in the featherweight division in the last decade is Alexander Volkanovsky. The only other man he has lost to is Dustin Poirier when he went up to lightweight in a bid to claim the interim title. Other than that, he is clean sheets. It's 12 straight non-title fight victories, including this performance against Chan Sung Jung, where old pillow hands Holloway showed that he still got some pop in those hands. I was really happy to include the pillow hands joke that he and I had talked about before the fight with Arnold Allen in the about Saturday's action piece, and then have him come out and talk about it at his media availability as well. Really cool to see really great performance from Max, who certainly was carrying a great deal of weight into that fight. You could see it as he walked out. You could see it when he rushed out of the cage to hug his wife, Alessa. You could see it when all he wanted to talk about was congratulating the Korean zombie and raising up the people of Lahaina. UFC made the exception for him, allowing him to walk out with the Hawaiian flag. He wore the red tights for the first time in his career for the people of Lahaina, for the people of Maui. It was a great performance. The thing with Max, and I wrote about this on Friday for OSDB Sports, is that I just don't know what to do with him from here. He is clearly the silver medalist in this division. As I said, he has beaten every non-title challenger you have put in front of him. And the really tricky thing for him right now is that even if you look at the next three people behind him in the rankings, Yair Rodriguez, Brian Ortega, Arnold Allen, beaten all of them. Number seven and number eight, Calvin Cater and Chan Sung Jung, beaten them. And I don't want to see him face number five, Ilya Tapuria. I don't want to see him face 
Mavsari Vloyev or the winner of the forthcoming Bryce Mitchell Danny Gay fight. And so I think he's in a really tricky position. I know that he wants to get back to a championship opportunity. I know that he would like to fight Alexander Volkanovsky for a fourth time and believes, as he said, going into this one, the, the goal and the plan is to make himself undeniable. And I applaud that approach. But what he might need to do is kind of hang out and hover, maintaining his place without taking out any ascending talents and see what happens after Volkanovsky after Volkanovsky's next fight. We don't know when that is as of yet. It has not been announced. We do not know who it will be against. My assumption is that it will be Ilya Tapuria, who's coming off that win over Josh Emmett and is undefeated and, and looked great in the UFC thus far. But it might behoove Max to just take a little time here to just wait and see how the landscape of the division changes over the next four to six months, even nine months. And just maybe start doing a little bit of that Dustin Poirier picking and choosing Biden your time. I'm not saying hold out for only people in the top five where your next win guarantees you a title shot as people have been critical of Poirier and Chandler and Justin Gaethje doing in the past. What I'm saying is wait and see what happens with Volk because if he wins against Tapuria, let's say that fight happens, I believe he will go up to lightweight in an attempt to become a two-weight world champion to challenge whether it's Islam Ahashev or Charles Oliveira, whoever has the title for the lightweight title. That will necessitate an interim title being created again. And Max Holloway would understandably be in a position to be considered for that. And that might be the course of action for Max. That might be his path back to a championship fight in the featherweight division. The other option, as always, just move up to 55. I think if he wanted to take nine months, put the weight on properly, build his body out properly, go up there and see what those boys are all about at 55, certainly an option. I don't know that it's one that he wants to investigate, that he's serious about at this point, but I think he could have some success there. Now, it may not be the championship level success that he's enjoyed and wants to enjoy again at featherweight because people at lightweight are just that little bit bigger, just that little bit heavier, that little bit stronger. And he felt that experienced that in the fight with Dustin Poirier, right? They went the distance Poirier wins because he lands the more impactful blows. Now maybe that changes if Max moves up full time and adds the mass and gets to a point where he is cutting weight similar to what he's doing at featherweight, but to hit that 55 limit where he's then carrying more power into the octagon. But for right now, and we'll certainly talk about it when we get to the matchmaking portion of things, I think the best course of action jointly between Holloway and the UFC is to wait and see what happens in the division, keep him away from some of those ascending talents, and just take a little bit of time to see how things shake out. Not a lot for me to say about the light heavyweight co-main event between Anthony Smith and Ryan Spann. I thought Spann fought well, fought wisely, was much more patient and measured in his approach. He didn't have any of the wild moments. But at the same time, that kind of cost him a little bit. He was a little bit too hesitant and too 
contained in that fight, especially in the third round. He had Anthony Smith hurt in the second. Seemed like maybe he would be able to get him out of there. And then the third was just too close to really be upset about. Now, if you want to argue that Ryan Spann deserved the nod in that fight, I'm not going to challenge you on that. Again, that was this week's version of the really close fight where we all acknowledge that it's a really close fight and then get upset when it goes against the guy that we thought won. It was a super close fight. I haven't rewatched it. I'm not going to do a minute by minute rewatch because it's not a fight of that magnitude for me. But what it does is, is just sort of remind us and reset for us where each of these guys fit within the division. I don't think Anthony Smith is going to be a title challenger again anytime soon. It wasn't that kind of performance. And if he were going to be, I would have expected him, would have expected to see him run through Ryan Spann with some of the swiftness and force that he did the first time around. But he's still competitive. And he's still capable of being that guy in the middle of the division that, sorry, in the middle of the top 15, I should say, that serves as a test for the next wave of fighters that are trying to move forward. And while I don't want every fighter to go through the Anthony Smith test, I think he serves and stands as a really good test for one a year or maybe two a year, where we just see there's not a significant number of young, emerging, fresh names in that division just quite yet. They're coming, we're getting there, but they're not quite at this point yet. And so using Anthony Smith once a year in that role of a measuring stick feels like the right way forward. We'll get to the name a little later in the show, but that was my takeaway was not a contender anymore, but still has obvious clear value going forward in a 205 pound weight class that is very much in a state of flux right now with Jamal Hill, the champion hurt Yuri Prohoshka's return, still not determined some names that are in the mix, looking to come back some new names starting to work forward. And so a good win for Anthony Smith, a good performance that shows unlike the fight with Johnny Walker, that he is still in it, that he's still with it, that he's still capable of going out, winning fights, finding ways to win fights where he is compromised, where he is hurt, and we'll see what happens going forward. The next takeaway for me is that Rinya Nakamura is really good, but also really aware of where he stands right now in his development and progression as an athlete. And I like that a lot. I like that a great deal because this is then an athlete that that understands both the depth of his skill now, but also where it can get to in the future. And so he comes out after this win over Fernie Garcia, which is a clear dominant victory, 30-26 and 30-27 twice, shows good wrestling, showed a little bit of his hands again, goes out, gets a quality win, and then gets on the mic and says, look, I'm coming, I'm going to get there, but I'm only 28, so just be patient with me. And I really love it because I want more people, more athletes, more competitors to have that mindset. Harry and I talked a couple weeks ago or a month ago now about Tatsuro Taira after his win against Edgar Shires, where going into it, my thought was if he wins here, 
let's just, let's give him the push. And when he came out of that fight, and it was a competitive fight, and there were some scary moments in that fight, he and I both said, okay, now it's time to actually take the foot off the gas and give him that time to build and work on things and further develop. And so while I'm a little bit cognizant of the fact that Nakamura is already 28 years old, and so there's not multiple years to work with, there's not four or five years for him to grow and develop and build to where he needs to get to. I think there's two. I think you can do even you, even you could take this as a year by year basis. You can give him two more fights where each one is a step up, but not that significant one that I talked about coming into this event. As good as this performance was, I actually don't need him to go forward into that cusp of the top 15 matchup. He wants to take his time, so let him take his time. Bantamweight is deep enough and talented enough that we don't need to rush him into the mix if he wants to get two or three more fights before he's into that top 15 grouping. Now, results may dictate that he has to do it sooner than that, but let the results dictate it. Play the results. Don't play the want or the desire or the need. Take what the fights tell you and take what the athlete tells you and go from there. I think too many times the UFC and fans and media have this idea of what they want and what that athlete might be able to do. And that takes precedent and priority over what is actually best, both for the competitor and the division. And right now for Nakamura and the bantamweight division, that's slow playing him a little bit. I'm not saying you do lateral moves here and continue having him fight contender series graduates and guys that no disrespect to Fernie Garcia haven't won fights in the UFC, but you also don't throw him in there with somebody, as I had said earlier in the week in, in talking about this fight and what potentially could come next, somebody like Saeed Nurmagomedov or Cody Stammen. I think there's space between those two limits to find interesting fights that are good tests for Nakamura that allow him to build. You do four to six months between every fight, allow him to continue gaining experience in the, in the gym, sharpening his tools. This is a kid that is only a little over two years into his transition to mixed martial arts as a competitor. And so to be where he is having the success he's having all signs point to him being a very good fighter in the future, but we can take our time in getting there. We don't have to get there right away. Play the results, listen to the athlete, make your decisions from there, not based on what you want and what you want to promote. Which brings us to Aaron Blanchfield. And when I talk about playing the results, Blanchfield is a perfect example of that. I think after the Molly McCann fight, she wanted that big test. The UFC wanted to see that big test for her. She got it. It ended up being Jessica Andrade after Tyler Santos was forced out of the fight or, or chose to withdraw, I should say. She dominated that fight. She goes out on Saturday. And I mean, this wasn't a pretty win. This wasn't a victory that we're all coming away from oohing and on about the moments that Aaron Blanchfield had. This wasn't the submission of Molly McCann. This wasn't the submission of Jessica Andrade. 
But to me, this was the far more impressive performance of those three and really the best performance of her UFC career. What I saw in this fight and my takeaways from this fight is that Aaron Blanchfield is going to be an absolute nightmare in the fourth and fifth rounds of big fights going forward for eternity. She understood, I'm going to lose this first round. I might lose this first round. I'm going to take some shots. And she got in there and and found out pretty quickly, I'm going to struggle to take this woman down. But I'm going to keep trying, and I'm going to wear on her, and I'm going to grind on her. And eventually, where she's ahead of me, physically, athletically, power, all the things that I do are going to pull me even, and then let me push ahead. And that's exactly how this fight played out. Tyler Santos won the first round. Picked at Aaron Blanchfield in space. Gave her a little cut on the bridge of her nose. Landed some good shots. Defended all the takedowns. Aaron Blanchfield was over on takedowns in this fight. And still won a no question about it. 29-28 sweep of the scorecards. Because of that pressure. Because of that pace. Because of that willingness to do the absolutely grimy shit that she had to do against the cage, just wearing on Tyler Santos and saying, you know what? My gas tank's going to hold up and I don't think yours will. And when you put that into round four and round five against championship level opponents, it's going to be a weapon. It's going to be a threat. We talk about Bilal Muhammad as somebody that has learned to weaponize his pace and weaponize his pressure. Aaron Blanchfield has clearly learned from that, has clearly cribbed some of those notes from Bilal Muhammad because it's a similar approach, right? I may not get you down, but I'm going to make you defend. I'm going to make you work. I'm going to make you grind and pummel and create space and force yourself and get yourself off the cage, which at the same time means you're not getting off much offense. And if you talk to any coach or any athlete, they will tell you that the most punishing thing physically, the most taxing thing physically is wrestling, especially against the fence, because it just takes all of your body. You're carrying that weight. You're forced to deal with the whole weight of another human being that just wants to keep you there. And it taxed Tyler Santos and allowed Aaron Blanchfield to go out and get another victory and put herself in a position And this is not a spoiler for the matchmaking. She said it in the cage. I said it going into the event. She put herself in a position to challenge for the title next time out. Going to group the two heavyweight fights together. The wins for Junior Taffa and Waldo Cortez Acosta. Simply because this feels to me like one of those instances where a lot of us, probably myself included, were anchored to the idea of These guys haven't done anything yet. It hasn't been pretty. And so they're not going to go anywhere. But the thing I think we all miss and we all fail to remember is that both Tafa and Cortez Acosta, excuse me, are extremely young in their MMA careers. The Dominican salsa boy is just a couple years into his transition, was boxing after the baseball career, then moved into MMA. He, he earned his contract to the UFC less than a year ago. And now here he is, 3-1 and one in the UFC already, in the heavyweight division, coming off an absolute 
murder ball knockout of Lucas Dreschke. Junior Taffa, similar thing. This is just two appearances. He's 26 years old. He has some kickboxing experience. His brother is in the UFC. He trains with good athletes. He trains with good fighters. He has that ability and room to grow and develop and build. I don't necessarily know or believe that either of them is going to become a contender, but I think we are too quick to dismiss and set the ceiling for these athletes that come in young and raw and inexperienced. I understand wanting to see athletes that are more fully formed, that are more polished, that are more well-rounded compete in the UFC, but that's not where we are anymore. That's not where we're at. There are a lot of young, inexperienced fighters. And the crazy thing to me in the dismissal of them and the criticism of them is that it's also what we've wanted for a lot of a lot of time is to bring some new names in. So here are some new young names. Let's give them the time to grow. A perfect example of it competes next weekend in Paris in the main event in Sergei Spivak. Lost two of his first three fights. Knocked out in under a minute by Walt Harrison, his debut in Ottawa, Ontario. Loses a unanimous decision to Marcin Tybura in his second fight. Submits Tai Tuivasa in between, but everybody just remembers the one and two start. And then the next three fights are all victories, but they're all by decision. And they're not particularly dominant or flashy or showy. And then he loses to Tom Aspinall on short notice. And it again is the, well, this is as, as high as he can go, as far as he can go. But since then, he's 3-0. And it's three finishes. And last time out, it was Derek Lewis. And he has an opportunity on Saturday to run it to four, to put himself in the top five, when just a couple years ago, a whole lot of people, including smart people, were completely convinced that this guy's ceiling, his limit, was to be a... 8 through 15 fighter in the UFC at best. He's proven that wrong. And to me, there's no reason that Junior Taffa or Waldo Cortez Acosta couldn't potentially do that as well. And we need to give them the opportunity to show us who they are and how far they can go in the octagon. We can't look at that loss for Cortez Acosta to Marcos Rosario de Lima last time out and say, well, he lost that one, so that's as far as he can go. Pezao has three times, four times, five times as many fights as Salsa Boy. Let it go. Let him have some time to grow, develop. We saw the high-end positives of it on Saturday with the knockout of Lucas Dreschke. Same with Junior Taffa with the knockout of Parker Porter. Let's just give them time to grow. We ask all the time, where are the new heavyweights? Where are the young emerging names at heavyweight? Here's two. Give them the opportunity to grow. Garrett Armfield looked exceptional in his win over Toshioma Kazama. Showcased terrific boxing. Talked about it in his post-fight. Been boxing since he was a baby. He's got these hands. He's ready to put those paws on people. He put them on Kazama. Great first-round stoppage win. This was not quite. So it wasn't because of the level of competition. And this isn't a, a knock on Kazama, but he is a guy that had some success overseas on the regional circuit, made it into the UFC through the road to UFC program, losing in the, in the finals of the bantamweight competition to Rinya Nakamura. This is a 
let's just give him another opportunity. Let's just see what he can do kind of thing. So he's not the level of competition that is going to prompt me to, to hustle to throw Garrett Armfield into the, oh boy, you better watch out because here's another one coming at bantamweight. But this performance absolutely makes me circle that name and go, okay, we were right about, let's wait till he gets back to his natural weight class. Debuted against David Onama at featherweight, super short notice, comes back to bantamweight, looks terrific. Now I want to see what's next. Now, I, now I'm interested. I was already interested coming into Saturday, but that effort, that kind of performance, if he can continue to replicate that while working forward, we'll eventually find out how far forward he can go. But now I'm intrigued. Now I'm, now I'm in on seeing where this gets to. And for me, that's all I look for in fights like this and on fight cards like this. Give me a reason to pay attention going forward. Tafa did that. Cortez Acosta did that. Armfield did that. I'm in. Let's go. I was already in on Mihaly Olyshechuk. I talked about that on Wednesday and Thursday in terms of one question and 10 things, knowing that this was going to be a stand-up banger between he and Chidi and Jokuwani. He goes out and gets the finish, eats a head kick like this was this was 4 minutes and 16 seconds of madness. Hussar is somebody that I will continually be interested in seeing. He is going to be capped in terms of how far he could go because we saw in his fight previous to this against Kyle Bahayo that there is currently a blueprint for how to beat him. That is take him to the ground, wrestle him into oblivion and maybe find a choke. So he's going to have to continue to shore that up to work on that if he wants to go too much further ahead or a great deal further ahead. But listen, if he just ends up being this dude for the next five years where we get banger after banger, body shots galore, I'm in. And I know that not everybody is because people seem to want only ascending products, only ascending prospects, I should say. People constantly moving forward. But I'm okay with dudes that hang out, that know their place, that have tenure in a division and are just consistently entertaining. And Mihao Olyshechuk is consistently entertaining. The fight between Song Kinan and Rolando Bedoya confirmed a lot of what I was leery of going into this fight. And I don't say that as a means of patting myself on the back and, hey, look how smart I am. But it's one of those situations where I think we got over-invested. I think we got over-excited about Bedoya because of the debut performance against Chaos Williams, which was a good performance. Don't get me wrong. It's a good performance. Split decision loss. A bunch of people thought he should have won. Chaos Williams is a relatively established second 15 guy in the welterweight division. But I think we got too excited about the 26-year-old from Peru. And Song Kinan just went out and made the right adjustments and did the right things. Bedoya started well, throwing lots of combinations landing a lot of volume, and Song Kinan just continued to march forward. This, to me, was one of those fights a little bit tortoise in the hair. Bedoya goes out super quick, gets a good lead, and Kinan, Song just keeps chipping away and chipping away and clawing back that space and clawing back that lead until, in the third round, he gets himself past Bedoya 
and into the winner's circle. This is something that I am going to try to continue to identify as we go forward with fight cards, continue to call out when I'm analyzing these matchups, because I think there are times that it's important to really drill down and look at these a little bit. This was a fight I stayed away from on the betting front on Friday on the picks and plays for this exact reason. Bedoya was a massive favorite coming off a loss. And while Song came in on two consecutive losses, losing to Ian Gary in a fight where you put him on his ass in the first round isn't all that bad. Losing to Max Griffin isn't all that bad. That's a bona fide second 15 dude. And so I think we saw a little bit of make sure we make full assessments and are real careful about how quickly we want to proclaim somebody to be really good based on, in this case, one result, one performance. I think we overrated Bedoya. I think we underrated Song Kinan a little bit. And the veteran from China went out and showed us that we made a little bit of a mistake in overrating Bedoya. I mentioned earlier that Garrett Armfield got my attention and got me to the point where I am interested, invested, looking forward to the next one. The same applies to Billy Ray Goff. He is a guy that, as I said, going in, my assessment was he's one of these guys that needs to take a few shots and gets hurt most of the time early, but has an ability to rally and find blows. And when he gets you hurt, he puts you away. And let me tell you, folks, let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, I love me some, some shots to the sternum that put people down. One of my favorite finishes of the last seven or eight years is the Mursad Bektik TKO. Can't remember who it was against, but he punched him square in the sternum. Just a drilling right hand. Square in the sternum, up against the cage. Very similar to this, where it's just like a baseball bat to the chest. And his opponent dropped, as Kinoshita did here. Billy Goff continues to move forward. He pulled the come-from-behind win on the Contender Series against Shimon Smotriski. Gets the victory here against Kinoshita. Again, I don't know how far or how quickly he ascends at welterweight, but I'm ready to sit back and enjoy and see what happens. This was a good win, a good performance, a great finish. Now let's just see what else comes from this. That, again, that's all I ask for from fights like this and cards like this. And if you're asking for more than that, you are asking for too much. Good win for J.J. Aldrich. The takeaway is just that every division needs a J.J. Aldrich. Just a capable, proven veteran hand that can go out there and be a really good test for anyone. Leung Na had good moments in this fight. There were good things that she showed in this bout, her first fight up at flyweight. But she just didn't have enough and doesn't have enough right now to get past someone as sturdy and savvy and capable as J.J. Aldrich. She's not going to be a top 15 fighter in this division, which is continually getting deeper, continually getting more talent to it. We're adding Rose Namajunas to the mix next week in Paris. But she has an absolute place in this division. And I want to make sure I will do my best to always sing the praises of athletes like this that just go out 
And you know, every time they get in the cage, they're going to be well-prepared. They're going to be focused. They're going to fight to the best of their abilities. We saw that on Saturday from JJ Aldrich. We will see that from her the next time she steps into the cage and the time after that and the time after that, because that's who she is. And that's somebody that every division needs. As far as the opener, my takeaway is that maybe, just maybe, Sungwoo Choi has grown up a little bit. And this is an exciting development for me. You can hear the excitement in my voice. He is a guy that I have always enjoyed watching, largely because he was always capable of being drawn into a brawl. But on Saturday, despite getting dropped at one point in the second round, eating a beautiful uppercut from Jarno Ahrens, he fought tactically. He fought smartly. He fought wisely. He used some of that length and some of that power, but he didn't overthrow. He didn't overcommit to one shot and he went out and got a very good win to get him moving in the right direction again. This is an athlete. Again, I don't think he's going to be a contender. He's not going to get to that point. He's 30 years old already. I don't believe it's going to happen. But as he talked about in his post-fight availability, he's better than what he showed in these last three fights prior to this win over Aaron's. And I think if he can continue to show this maturity going forward, he should be able to have a more consistent career going forward. It's not always going to be wins, but it's not going to be three wins and three losses and then finally back into the win column. He can be that J.J. Aldrich or a J.J. Aldrich at featherweight. And again, we need athletes like this. We need these kinds of fighters. Whether you want to call them card fillers, I don't think they're jobbers in the professional wrestling parlance, but they're just professionals, right? They're just the journeymen, the good hands that can go out there and put on a good fight. And at some point, he'll probably be the litmus test for some 24, 25-year-old featherweight that's on the come up. And there'll probably be a point where he's the guy that gets tagged in to face the veteran that is on a two-fight slide and needs a get-right fight or needs a chance to get right against somebody that isn't in the rankings. And as much as that isn't necessarily the position anyone aspires to when they get into this sport, when they start competing and they reach the UFC, it's still good work if you can get it. And I think Sungwoo Choi is going to get it going forward. Takeaways in the books, which brings us to the matchmaking portions portion of things, excuse me. And we're going to work from the bottom of the card up. So we just finished talking about Sung Woo Choi. We start there. And I think to me, the right kind of matchup for him, and it fits exactly what I was just talking about, is the winner of the upcoming fight between Far Jack Jenkins and Chepe Marichal. They are set to fight in Sydney in a couple weeks' time. It should be a entertaining bit of a banger. Chepe won a short notice fight against Trevor Peak up a division at lightweight in his debut. Jack Jenkins earned unanimous decision wins, a unanimous decision win in his debut and a split decision win in his second fight. So the winner will be on a little run in the UFC. Choi is an experienced, a seasoned guy and the right kind of test for each of those fighters in order to get an assessment of where they're at and where they might get to going forward. 
in terms of Aldrich, I have a name down here. And as I sit here and get ready to say it, and it is Miranda Maverick, I realize that they both train in Denver, which means they both train together. And so I don't think that's going to work. That's not going to be a fight that makes sense at this point because they're friendly, they train together. So I don't think that works. But I think it should be someone in that range. Going through, looking at the list of fighters in the UFC flyweight division, I think you could see or face someone like Melissa Gatto, who is now on back-to-back losses after starting her career undefeated in 10, including two victories in the UFC. I think that's sort of the range of fighter. I wouldn't be disappointed in seeing her face Karine Silva, who got a victory last time out, last weekend, I should say, against Marina Moros. That certainly wasn't the fight that I made for Karine Silva, which was the winner of Tracy Cortez and Jasmine Jazz Davisius, just so we're clear. But I wouldn't be, I wouldn't hate, hate that kind of fight. Excuse me. That's the kind of range. That's the kind of matchup I think we see for J.J. Aldrich. I think we see her in there against somebody on the way up that's looking to continue to win. Now that I'm going through and I'm continuing to look, I wouldn't I wouldn't be upset with Yulia Stolyarenko, right? Coming off her win over Molly McCann in London. First fight at flyweight. She has talked about this is a reset for me. Let's get her in there with a veteran that can throw hands, that can defensively wrestle a little bit, right? We've seen that in some of the fights from J.J. Aldrich in the past. Thinking primarily about the fight with Jillian Robertson. Kept that fight standing, pieced up Jillian Robertson. So let's do that one. Let's let's see her against Yulia Stolyarenko. That's the fight I'm going to make. For Billy Goff, I think you get him in there with another fellow contender series winner. Johnny Parsons got a victory in London over Danny Roberts. It was a slapdash back and forth brawl. Kind of feels like a tailor-made opponent for somebody like Billy Goff. They're both at the start of their UFC runs. They both had some time away before their UFC debuts after winning on the contender series. Let's put them together and just see which one moves forward. That's not necessarily something I always want to do, especially early in an athlete's career, but welterweight is so deep and so flush with names that I think it makes sense. There's no need to really draw it out and prolong it. Let's find out in their joint sophomore efforts, which one of them moves forward. Staying at welterweight for Song Kinan, I like the idea of a fight with Phil Rowe. Rowe got to a point prior to his last fight where he was kind of knocking on the door of the top 15. And then he got in there with Neil Magny and he kind of dropped a fight that he probably truthfully should have won. He kind of gave that fight away a little bit. And I'm sure if you talk to Phil Rowe, he will tell you that he's kicking himself. He had won three straight before that, then dropped a split decision to Magny. So getting him in there with Song Kinan, a guy that is dangerous, a guy that is experienced, a guy that can push him, feels like a way to, to potentially gauge a reset for the 33-year-old row. He's gotten to the cusp of the top 15. Now let's see if he can rebound quickly, get himself moving forward again with a win over Song Kinan. And conversely for Song Kinan, you beat Phil Rowe, that carries you to a greater height than you have been in the UFC thus far, that gets you back into those matchups with the Max Griffins and the Ian Machado Garys of the world. Which, again, it's not necessarily the role you want to be in of the guy that the emerging talent always faces, 
but it's good work if you can get it. And I think he can get it. So that feels like a good matchup to me to get our second welterweight fight out of the way. For me, how Oli Shechuk, I like the idea of continuing to put him in there with guys that in theory should be willing to stand with him, but could test him on the ground. So why not give Mahmoud Muradov a call? Going back to that London card again, Muradov got a win over Brian Barberina to get back in the win column himself to get moving forward. He had fought Kyle Bahio as well, so they have that in common. But these are two guys that are in that same space that if we want to see if one of them can take another step forward, put them together, and the winner moves forward. In theory, I think it could be an entertaining stand-up fight. I do think Muradov will look to wrestle a little bit more than maybe he otherwise would just because of the striking that comes back at him from Oli Shechuk. But that feels like a good matchup to me. So that's the pick for Mihail Oli Shechuk. For Garrett Armfield, there's a fight coming up between Johnny Munoz Jr. and a Ricky Lang. And that to me feels like just the right little spot. Just the right place to go. We're not rushing this. We're not throwing him in too deep. We're not getting all crazy with it. But get him in there with somebody that has been in the octagon four or five times that has gotten their hand raised a couple of times as the case will be for whoever wins this fight already a couple of wins for each of them inside the octagon winner continues moving forward and we get to see what that boxing is like Ricky Lang and Johnny Munoz Jr. both happy to stand up and trade Munoz a little bit more of a grappler but has been previously happy to stand up and trade with guys so that feels like the right just little half step up Maybe a full step up, but a step up that is manageable. And if Garrett Armfield is meant to be somebody that continues moving forward in the bantamweight division, a step up that he can go out and win and look good in and continue to progress. There is a temptation with the two heavyweights early in their careers to just say, you know what? Pair them together. The timelines are aligned, but I don't want to do that. So for Waldo Cortez Acosta, or sorry, yeah, Waldo Cortez Acosta. I've got it written down in my notes wrong. That's why there's a pause. I say the winner of Dante Mays and Rodrigo Nascimento, which takes place in a couple of weeks' time. And for Junior Taffa, I think you go with Carl Williams. You go with another guy that has two fights in the UFC. Williams is 2-0 thus far. You get him in there with Taffa, and it becomes a striker versus grappler. You continually force Junior Taffa to show that he can defend takedowns, and keep fight standing because that is going to be the determining factor of how much success he has in the UFC going forward. And for Cortez Acosta, it's a step up against, regardless of who wins that fight, similar to the Armfield thing. You're now getting in there with somebody that's earned a couple victories in the UFC. And in the case of Dante Mays, coming off last time out, a win over Andre Arlovsky. And so if he goes out and beats Nascimento, to keep this moving forward. It's a guy that has come off the contender series, similar as he did, that seems to have a little bit of a push behind him and is a powerful dude. And so it gives you that measuring stick of where am I at in this division? Am I ready to take that next step and start fighting the Andre Arlovskis? Or maybe even further ahead as Mays has beaten Arlovsky, as I just said. Getting into some of those bigger matchups, getting, getting back to being ready to facing 
a Marcos Rogerio de Lima type in the future. So those are the heavyweight matchups for me. We move to Blanchfield. This one's easy. I said it earlier. She gets the winner of Grasso versus Shevchenko. And I understand that if Shevchenko wins, the Grasso camp will very understandably say, hey, we're one and one now. I think we're going to have to see how this fight plays out in a few weeks time on September 16th. But I think if Shevchenko wins the belt back and it's not a split decision, it's not a controversial ultra close fight that you can move away from the trilogy fight, at least for a couple of fights. You can tell Alexa Grasso, look, you win one more and she keeps the belt. We can do a trilogy at some point, but we don't need to do three straight, especially not when we have Blanchfield sitting right here at the ready. And we're going to have the winner of the Manon Fiero Rose Nami Yunus fight from Paris also in a position to say, hey, I'm in this mix as well. And so it's going to depend on how that fight goes. But I do think so long as it is a clear win on either side, you just go forward and do Blanchfield versus the winner for the flyweight title. Probably won't be able to get it in before the year is out, but early next year feels like a good timeline for that. If you're going back towards the East Coast at some point in that first quarter, maybe sticking Aaron Blanchfield in a title fight wouldn't be a bad idea. For Nakamura, I talked a little bit earlier about not doing the full jump to the fringes of the top 15 with a Saeed Nurmagomedov or a Cody Stamen. But can I interest you in a Sergey Morozov? This is the name I came to in sort of going through the bantamweight ranks. Morozov is a guy that is experienced. He's tested. He's 19 and five in his career, three and two in the UFC. He's coming off a win last time out. He's 34 years old, two fight winning streak, excuse me, wins over Howley and Paiva and Journey Newsom. He's a guy that's going to be able to wrestle and push in theory, Nakamura in the area where he is best. We've seen him land some big shots on people. Had Douglas Silva, DeAndrage hurt in their fight a few years back or a year and a half back at UFC 271 and is just that right level of veteran step up where Nakamura is getting a test without getting thrown to the wolves. He asked for patience. He asked for people to bear with him. This to me feels like a smart, patient, well thought out approach. When it comes to Anthony Smith, would I be able to interest you in a matchup against Khalil Roundtree Jr.? I didn't do the next day takeaways following the fight card between headlined, excuse me, by Vicente Luque and Rafael Dos Anjos. Family out, wasn't feeling it. I didn't do anything for the week here on Keyboard Kimura for that event. And so I didn't do takeaways, which means I didn't do matchmaking. If I did, the winner of this fight was who was going to get matched up with Khalil Roundtree after he knocked out Chris Dawkins to push the winning streak to four and three finishes in four fights. I think Roundtree Jr. has found the form to be a potential contender in this division, but it needs to be tested. And Anthony Smith is the right kind of test. Now, I think it's going to take some convincing. I think it will take the UFC going to Anthony Smith and saying, look, man, you fought just about everybody else. You're at number eight. I know you just fought backwards. 
in a rematch that was weird that you probably didn't think needs to happen. But what else are we going to do to you? What else are we going to do with you? You're not fighting one of those guys in the top five right now because they're either otherwise occupied or they beat you or it's Yuri Prohashka and Alexander Rakic who are both looking to come back and Rakic has already beat him as well. And so it just feels like he's in a position where the options are limited and it's a bunch of guys that are behind him. And Roundtree Jr. feels like both a very good test in terms of gauging where Anthony Smith is, but also a guy that if he looks at him, he might think, I've got some ways to beat him. I can get to my grappling. Khalil Roundtree isn't a grappler. Now he's got to worry about and deal with a clearly powerful and dangerous striker, but that's sort of the options and the limits of where Anthony Smith is at right now. I love that fight for Roundtree Jr. I think he says yes right away. It may take some convincing from Sean Shelby to get Anthony Smith to say yes, but that's a matchup I like. That's a fight Khalil asked for, a five-round fight. That's a fight that if you really needed to, if you really wanted to, you could stick that as a fight night main event. I would be happy with it. I'm sure a bunch of other people would complain, but so be it. You do that, if you go back to Nebraska, where Anthony Smith is from, headline him there, that feels like a cool way to do it. But I think that's a fight you could make, that you can make as a five-round fight to test Roundtree, to give Smith a chance to say, look, I'm not losing to these up-and-comers. I'm still here and get himself potentially moving forward back towards that top five group. This feels like the right kind of fight to make. I talked to Dan Ige, who fights at the end of September, about his last couple fights with Damon Jackson and Nate Landwehr. And so the last one out here in Vancouver, 289, against Landwehr, was him fighting backwards, as was Jackson. And he said, look, I, I knew I had to do that. I had lost three straight. And so I wasn't in a position to say, it needs to be somebody ahead of me. I don't want to fight that guy or that guy. And it was clear to him that Nate Landwehr was somebody that the UFC not necessarily was looking to push, but was looking to find out where he stood. And Ige was happy to sign on the dotted line and go out and show this dude ain't getting past me, as he did in Vancouver. I think Smith is in a similar position. And so get one more against somebody behind you in the rankings. It's still a ranked opponent. So it still carries value and weight as a victory. And we go from there. You may notice, intrepid audience that you are, that I skipped over Giga Chikadze. And I skipped over Giga Chikadze because the fight I want to see for Giga Chikadze is also the fight I want to see for Max Holloway. I think this is the matchup you make for each guy going forward. And here's why. Not only does the timeline feel like it makes sense, and maybe it doesn't because Giga may want to get back and get active, as he talked about in his post-fight interview in the cage with Michael Bisping. He's been out for a while, and so he's back and he's coming. But this feels, in looking at the division, like the right kind of usage of Max Holloway and the right opportunity for a guy like Giga Chikadze, who is 35 years old already. This isn't some spring chicken that is just getting started and just starting to work his way forward. Turned 35 a couple of days ago on Friday. Happy birthday, Giga. It is a absolute unquestioned main event 
which means Giga gets another opportunity to go five rounds to show that he can maybe go five rounds. From a competitive, entertaining interest standpoint, I think it would appeal to Max Holloway. And as I said in talking about Holloway in the takeaways, there's just not a lot of other names in the division right now in the top 10 that I would want to see him matched up with. Yair Rodriguez is at two. He's beaten him. Brian Ortega is at three. He's beaten him. Arnold Allen, four. Beaten him. Tapuria might be fighting for the title. Leave him out of it. Josh Emmett, coming off consecutive losses. Shouldn't be fighting Max Holloway off consecutive victories. Calvin Cater, beat him and coming off an ACL and consecutive losses. Just sent Chan Sung Jung into retirement. That brings us to Giga. This is the next guy that makes sense to me for Max Holloway. Because I don't think Max Holloway wants to be facing Mavsari Vloyev or Sadiq Youssef or someone in that range. I don't think he wants to go that far back in the division to face somebody where there's no upside for him. There's no interest. There's no hook to facing that person. At least with Giga, it is an experienced striker that he can go in there and say, look, I get to show again that I'm the best striker in this division and one of the best strikers in the UFC. From the Giga standpoint of things, this is the kind of fight again that he needs to win in order to move forward. He had that opportunity at the start of 2022 against Calvin Cater and he came up short. Let's see what you learned from it. Let's see how much you've improved and developed and grown in the time since that fight with the win over Alex Caceres, which is a good win on Saturday. And see if you can go out there and be the guy that gets past the silver medalist in this division. I don't feel like this is one of those Robert Whitaker fights all the next guy situations because Giga is far back in the line and it doesn't necessarily, to me, there's, there's enough upside to Giga potentially winning without there being such an upside for Max. Like if he went out and fought Ilya Tapuria, for instance, or Mavsari Vloyev and handed either of those gentlemen their first career loss to push his winning streak to three, you're kind of then stuck. You kind of then have to give Max Holloway another opportunity to fight for the title just because there's nothing else for him to do. He's then starting to have to do laps on the field and we've already seen those fights and seen those results. But if you have him fight Giga, who is far enough back in the rankings, that there does still then exist an opportunity, if need be, to face an Ivloyev after he gets another fight, or to face a Tapuria, perhaps for an interim title, depending on what happens with Volkanovsky, then you do it. But next up for each of them, in my opinion, should be a fight with one another that headlines a fight night show or headlights an ESPN show where we get to see Giga over five rounds, where we get to see Max continue to headline as he has done throughout the last several years of his career. And it also keeps him from facing those young emerging talents in the division. That is another episode of the Next Day Takeaways in the books. Please do me a favor, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Spencer Kite. Sign up for the Keyboard Kimura newsletter, spencerkite.substack.com. You can sign up for free for $5 a month or for 50 bucks for the year. Helps support me, helps put some 
money into that can be reinvested into this podcast, into the platform, into the surroundings here in the studio. Check out the guys at One Bone, onebonebrand.com forward slash Spencer Kite. Use my name at checkout, Spencer Kite, for 15% off your first order. The gear is fantastic. You know I love them. You know I'm happy to be working with them. And you know I love you. And I appreciate you checking in and rocking with me. That's it for this week. We move forward now to UFC Paris. Next weekend, Acor Arena, Cyril Gaon, Sergey Spivak in the main event, Manon Fioro and Rose Namajunas in the co-main. It is a good card. I will be here all week breaking it down, dissecting it, getting into it. I hope you have a wonderful week. I hope you have a wonderful weekend. I love you. I appreciate you. Take care of yourselves and one another. And we'll talk to you tomorrow.